Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin, coming to you live from lovely Chicago, Illinois, on a rather nasty day here. But that's all good because there's lots of wonderful things going on here in Chicago and around the world. We just finished a two-night run of J-Rad at the Riviera Theater, which we'll be talking about in a little while. Uh, The Michigan Wolverines are the number one ranked football team in college football in America, which is a glorious day. And we've got uh, uh, another great show to share with you today. Uh, It's going to be the Grateful Dead from the Fillmore West on uh, December 4th, 1969. And uh, let's run the intro as if you were sitting right there in the auditorium. As you know, the Marlboro country is really Kansas. You know what you mean, cancer? Hello, 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 hello to the house. Oh, grotesque. And they said it couldn't be done. And lo, it wasn't. We got a microphone on here. Excuse me for interrupting. Now, now that you've waited for a half an hour for the Grateful Dead to get together, you'll have to listen to me for just a minute. Sam Cutler told you what was going on, so it's gonna something's gonna happen, right? It's getting good and crazy, and I think that all of us knew that it was gonna come down to this when they wouldn't let us play in the park. Yeah, it's some kind of standoff. No confrontation, though. We've already been on that trip, and we see what happened uh, in Berkeley with private property and uh, all that stuff, you know, clubs. So we're going to have a good time at a party and good music, and everybody's going to come and take care of themselves, I hope. Uh, if you do come out there early, you should be prepared to help and be prepared to bring something to share because uh, it's cold and, uh, you know, all those things. I don't have to tell you about that. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the Grateful Dead. So 54 years ago today, the Fillmore West out in California, and what in the hell are they talking about? Just shut up and let the dead come out and play music. This, we're doing that. You've all heard about it. Sam Cutler talking about it. Well, what they're talking about is the famous or more properly infamous uh, concert that was held at the Altamont Raceway in Tracy, California, two days later on December 6, 1969. This was literally... Uh, an invite to the deadheads um, to come out to Tracy to go to uh, the Altamont Speedway uh, for this big concert that all started when the Rolling Stones decided they wanted to have a Woodstock West. Um, And uh, there's a great uh, movie about this uh, that the Grateful Dead did a documentary, Gimme Shelter, that, that, that goes through all of this. And um, Marvin Belli was involved, the famous attorney, uh, all sorts of people. And uh, they got the dead on board for it as well. And on December 6th, about 300,000 people descended on this raceway. And, and there's a book out on it, actually, which I have and I've read. And it's a, it's a great book because what it talks about is it was a great idea in theory. And there were some definite logistics that they managed to pull off. But they were trying to build a stage that they were still building as everybody walked into the into the raceway and the crowd started showing up by the next day there were huge lines of traffic and they didn't have time to build a particularly large stage so the stage itself was really only raised up about two feet off the ground it was kind of at the bottom of a big uh, bowl of uh, a hill of grass where everybody could sit and watch 
So the, the thinking was, we don't have time to build a big stage. We don't need to because everybody can see us. And it was a disaster because, of course, the people right up front could literally just like step up onto the stage if they want. Uh, the concert is famous because the Stones hired Hell's Angels to be the bodyguards. And in the course of the evening, uh, one gentleman was unfortunately killed by the Hell's Angels um, in a uh, in a dust up right in front of the stage, actually, that, that right in front of Mick, uh, who was kind of watching the whole thing. And uh, in, the, in the documentary, they show him later back in the film room watching the film and, you know, greatly stressed by the fact that this was going on and that the hell's angels were doing this. And at that point there was no stopping them. They weren't going to listen to the Rolling Stones, tell them to stop. They're kind of a free thinking group of guys. And um, it was very, very unfortunate and unfortunate that that's what this is remembered for. The Rolling Stones set was okay. Uh, the dead, I don't think ever took the stage because uh, it was so violent. Uh, the story is that when Jefferson airplane was playing, I believe it was Paul Cantner who got hit in the head by a bottle thrown from the crowd and things just kind of went downhill after that. So um, Altamont is remembered uh, warmly or not, depending on uh, what side of the fence you're sitting on. But either way, it, it's clearly a um, uh, a milestone in rock and roll history and an early example of people trying to capitalize in on the festival type of atmosphere. And, you know, while it was a, a success at Woodstock, although that's even under debate, given the, the all the stories of the large numbers of people who showed up and the lack of uh, adequate uh, facilities, which they were finally still trying to get in place and um, traffic jams and all sorts of things, you could argue that, you know, these really weren't very well run um, festivals. But I think the bigger idea is that they were festivals. And they kind of launched the way uh, for the uh, rock and roll world that we have today and all of the uh, festivals that pop up everywhere now. And of course, these days, festivals are much better uh, planned and, and, and run much better. Although anytime you're going to get a large group of people who are all probably doing hallucinogenics gathered in one space, uh, you're likely to run into some problems. But nevertheless, uh, this is historic because uh, two days before Altamont uh, at the Grateful Dead show at the Fillmore West, um, the boys are pushing the Altamont concert hard. And I think for many of them, it was kind of a, you know, counterculture move and stick it to the man and uh, all of that kind of stuff. But it is a famous day in rock history. I would recommend the book very highly. Uh, I would recommend the Gimme Shelter documentary. Um, and you can find the music and listen to it as well. And some of it is actually, you know, really, really good. Um, and it's, uh, you know, quite a uh, gathering of musicians. The Rolling Stones were not at Woodstock. They were clearly a huge band at the time. So their addition to Altamont was huge. And of course, this year, the Rolling Stones will be playing down at Jazz Fest. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. Um, but that's how this concert launched uh, 50 years ago today at the Fillmore West um, with the announcement to everyone to please come to Woodstock. After that, the dead got down to business, uh, played some great music. And we're going to play another clip right for you here because this was a, a monumental performance on that night. I was laying in my bed and dying. Anybody knows from Sam and Jill? See the weather down here. So fast. 
yes, that is Black Peter. Uh, Jerry's voice is amazing, relatively speaking, to what we later heard of him. Uh, fresh, energetic, um, although the, the, the music moves kind of slowly, it's a, uh, a wonderful piece of music. And the significance of this performance of Black Peter on December 4th, 1969 is that it was the first one ever. This is the dead breaking out Black Peter. And what we're going to find as we go through the rest of this show, this is 1969 December, Working Man's Dead was still not coming out for another couple of months. Uh, but this is the first of a handful of uh, uh, Working Man Dead tunes uh, that were played at this show. Uh, and a few of them were previewed at this show. And uh, certainly Black Peter is one of them. Um, it's a song we've talked about before. Uh, Hunter and Garcia kind of telling us the story of a guy who's dying and all the things that he's going through. Uh, it can be kind of dark, but if you really listen to the lyrics, it can be kind of uplifting too. Um, and there's some really nice thoughts uh, hidden within the uh, uh, song. It's, uh, you know, Rob and I in the past would always joke about Black Peter being, you know, if you will, sorry for the pun, the black sheep of the Jerry Ballads, because when we're all sitting there waiting for that hot morning dew and you get Black Peter, your initial reaction is, oh, it's not morning dew. And then they get into the middle of the Black Peter and you realize uh, what a great tune it really is, uh, how tight the lyrics are, uh, how beautiful the melody is that Jerry puts on top of it. Because again, it kind of gives you that feeling of you're mourning a person who's, you know, dead or dying, but at the same time, it's just such beautiful music and, uh, uh, such a lovely story that, uh, it's you know, certainly one of my, uh, uh, a, a Jerry tune that I'm very high on. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Jerry's not still around, but were he uh, playing any day that they played Black Peter uh, would certainly be okay with me. And there's there's no question that the boys loved it because after this initial performance of the song on 12-4-69, they went on to perform it another 350 times over the years, putting it very high on the list of uh, most frequently played Grateful Dead shows. The song uh, was last played on June 22nd, 1995 at the Knickerbocker uh, uh, Auditorium in Albany, New York. So uh, it, it didn't quite make it to the to the last round of dead shows. And uh, who knows why, I can't tell you. Um, but uh, Jerry uh, loved this tune, and it certainly was in the repertoire uh, for 25 of the 30 years that the Grateful Dead were performing live. Um, it's a beautiful song. We really love it. And... Uh, well, today's its birthday, so happy birthday to Black Peter. Okay, before we dive back into the dead, let's talk some other music here for a second because there's really a lot going on in the musical world. Uh, as probably just about anybody knows right now, whether you are a jam band fan or not, Fish is going to be playing at the Las Vegas Sphere, which we just talked about with Alex Wellens last week. Um, this brand new... Uh, uh, multifunctional uh, uh, facility venue that they've built out in Las Vegas. Looks like a big round sphere from the outside. And Alex gave us a little bit of a description and an explanation of what it looks like on the inside. But the uh, video capabilities are amazing. And the light shows that they're going to be able to put on is amazing. And while all bands out there these days have made their, their light show and their sound show and all of that key priorities, there are a few bands that really take it to the level of fish and their uh, absolutely excellent crew uh, that does their lighting and their sound and everything like that. And it really promises to be a string of shows uh, that true fish heads will not want to miss 
the problems, of course, are going to be limited number of tickets and the pricing of those tickets, which is, I believe, expected to uh, go past $200 for a ticket, which, while probably very normal for Las Vegas and certainly for the Sphere, um, is maybe a little bit more than uh, fish heads are used to uh, paying. So we'll see how that plays out. But whether uh, the younger fish heads go or not, uh, the older jam band crowd is very excited. And this is what I mean. I'm getting texts from people who have never seen fish or maybe seen fish once or typically don't want to spend a lot of time talking about fish or aren't really interested in fish. But fish is genius, as are the owners of the sphere, because they're turning this into an event, not just about fish, uh, but about uh, performances at the sphere. And there's headlines like iconic jam band to come play at the sphere. And you're wondering if the guy who wrote the headline even knows who fish is or whether somebody just told him, uh, to say it that way, but all of a sudden, Fish is getting a lot of publicity um, that's that's mainstream and very very positive. Not that they've gotten negative publicity in the past, but you know, I, I think that you know the Dead eventually became a a mainstream news curiosity because of how long they had been around, because of all the things they stood for in terms of cultural revolution and and you know being the first real jam band with that kind of following and crowd uh, made it made it very unique. By the time Fish comes around, uh, it's, it's not that it's old news, but there's plenty of bands out there doing it now, and you just don't get as many articles uh, from the mainstream media who are, oh, well, let's go check out Fish and see what they are. And, you know, like when Harry Reasoner did his report on the Grateful Dead and on the news one night and, you know, basically sat there and talked about the Grateful Dead as a, as a group out there, and, you know, we're going to turn this into an evening news story. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, you would say, this is just another Fish show, but hook it up with the Sphere – and all of a sudden, this is becoming huge news. And I guess for fish heads, it's a little bit of an unfortunate thing because as it drives interest and curiosity to the tickets, uh, the other thing that it does is send a strong message to scalpers that there will be a huge uh, black market for these tickets. And so scalpers who do go in and, and try and get fish tickets, but maybe not as much as they try to scalp Stones or U2 or, or other big names like that, are now, uh, uh, now in the know uh, as to what value these tickets might have. And uh, on the one hand, it's great, right? Fish is, is, is out there. They're big. They're here. They're everywhere. And, um, you know, people are all totally fascinated about it. But much like with the Grateful Dead, when they reach that point, um, I can't even call myself, you know, one of these, you know, hardcore dedicated fish heads because I haven't been to nearly enough shows. Uh, but those folks who know what they are, my son Matthew, his crew, uh, it makes it tough for them because now there's a lot of people trying to get tickets who might in the past – you said, ah, whatever, it's just fish at the sphere. We'll see somebody else at the sphere. But the way this is being written up and talked about, uh, it's become a do not miss issue, uh, do not miss event. And uh, we're all hoping that this will not negatively impact the ability of the, the really true diehard, hardcore fish fans who have seen them everywhere all the time uh, to be able to get tickets. Um, on that note, I will say that I too am sending in my name to the uh, email uh, system that they use. Think uh, Grateful Dead mail order, only this time you don't have to have all the stupid postage and certified mailers and all of that. Uh, but you do have to give them a credit card number so that if they pick your name out of the hat and sign you with seats, you get charged right away. Um, you know, that can be a little bit risky, I suppose, sometimes. But here, I don't think it's going to be quite so much because I think that the secondary market is going to be strong enough that if you do the um, fish electronic sign up and they wind up giving you seats that you don't like or uh, otherwise don't work for you, it seems as though there will be a very, very strong secondary market for you to unload those tickets. 
Uh, so my advice is if you have any interest at all in seeing fish in the sphere, you ought to be signing up. And I think we have until December 11th. So a few more days, just about another week or so here uh, to get uh, to get your name listed on the uh, on the fish um, electronic sign up. Just be aware that when you do it, you have to give them a credit card number and you will be charged for those tickets when you get them. So in other words, you can't sit around, wait to get them and then call back up and say, you know what? I don't like these seats. Don't charge my credit card. By the time you're told you've gotten the tickets, your credit card has been charged. Um, so, you know, like I say, that's no difference in the mail order. We'd send in certified checks. They'd cash them and send us back tickets. And if we didn't like the tickets, um, and sometimes you didn't, sometimes you didn't, uh, you know, you, you couldn't call them back up and demand refunds or anything like that. So, uh, you know, you have to be a true fan or you have to be a true businessman who's really in this thinking, you know, I'm going to get the tickets and I don't really care where they are because I'm going to try and flip them. Uh, although, you know, here's me hoping that most of the people who sign up and get tickets are the true fish fans. Because uh, they're the ones who are going to really want them, and nobody should have to pay outrageously, ridiculously high uh, secondary market prices to see a band like Fish that has made its whole career out of uh, you know playing to the crowds and making themselves accessible and available and affordable, and uh, you know much like the Grateful Dead, uh, performing musical concerts that certainly, in my opinion, and many others, are hundreds of times better and more enjoyable and more meaningful than a lot of the concerts that the big rock stars put on these days. But the big rock stars are the ones who charge outrageous amounts. And speaking of rock stars who charge outrageous amounts, let's talk for a minute about the Rolling Stones, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And I do believe that we've talked about this. I don't view the Grateful Dead or Fish or a lot of these jam bands as quote unquote, traditional rock and roll bands. They've, they've kind of, they are in the rock and roll overarching category um, but rock and roll is rock and roll. And, uh, you know, you get your four to five or six minute songs, uh, that just get cranked out typically at high volume, you know, with a lot of tempo to them and, um, all sorts of stuff like that. And, um, you know, that's certainly the Rolling Stones and, uh, the Rolling Stones have been around forever. Now they put on amazing concerts. I know I've told the story a dozen times when I saw them in 81 in Philly, uh, we thought they were so old and couldn't believe how old they looked and how old they sounded. That was only 40 years ago. So, you know, uh, they fooled everybody. Um, Keith Richards, once again, wins the award for human being least likely to be alive at his age. Um, but he made it and God bless him. And maybe someday he'll teach all of us his secrets so that we can continue to go out and party up and, uh, uh, you know, know that we've still got plenty of time left on the other end. He's, he's quite a remarkable guy. Ronnie Wood, of course, um, uh, uh, um, Charlie Watts, the drummer, uh, recently passed, maybe not even so recently anymore. Bill Wyman, the bass player, uh, the original bass player is gone. So you, you basically have a core three uh, that has been filled in now with a number of other uh, wonderful musicians who who kind of fill it out. And that's a great thing. Um, and they're, these Stones tickets are all going to sell out, you know, everywhere they go. They're coming to Soldier Field. They just added a second night. And ticket prices, you know, are ridiculous. Two, three, four, five hundred dollars, depending on where you sit. Some of them are going for almost under a thousand dollars. And these are tickets being sold by the Rolling Stones. We're not talking secondary markup yet. By the time you get to secondary markup, ticket prices are escalating well beyond a thousand dollars. And even for regular seats. Now there will be, you know, place like Soldier Field is so large that if you're really interested in being in the building, but you don't mind sitting, you know, a hundred or 500 yards away, whatever it is, if you're at the other end of the stadium and, uh, you know, all the way up at the top, uh, you can probably get in for three, four hundred dollars, maybe five hundred dollars. 
that's still a lot of money to be sitting really, really far away. The only thing I can tell you that, you know, swings in the favor of doing it is that there's really nothing like a Rolling Stones concert and the guitar players will be jamming away and Mick Jagger pushing 80 years old, I assume will be running around on the stage like he always does. Um, And even though his voice can't hit all the notes it used to hit and uh, they're moving a little bit slower, there's no doubt that it's a rock and roll spectacle. And if you've never seen the Rolling Stones um, and you're willing to uh, just consider it a cultural experience that everyone should have and therefore willing to drop a few dollars for it, um, you can't go wrong seeing the Rolling Stones. You know, in talking to my friends, we've all seen them various number of times along the way. And there seems to be a little more reluctance to laying out that kind of money to see them just because it's a lot of money. Having said that, it will be very interesting to see ultimately how many people bite the bullet and say, you know, it's the Rolling Stones. And we know that every time they come around, we're thinking, by God, look at how old they are. This has got to be their last tour. Well, they just came out with a new album this year. So, you know, who knows what they have in mind. Um, And uh, look, Rolling Stones are fun. Soldier Field, if it's a nice weather day, could be a beautiful place to see a concert. Um, You know, and everybody else has to make their own decisions. But, you know, I'd like to think about the Rolling Stones. Look, it's one thing if you're a band in your prime and, you know, you're early early to mid years and you're out there um, and you've really hit it big. uh, And you know that if I sell a ticket for $100, it's going to get resold for $1,000. I want part of that. Okay, that's business. That's the way the business world works. And certainly in that regard, the Rolling Stones are completely justified selling their tickets for whatever the market will bear. However, let's not lose sight of the fact that the Rolling Stones have been playing now for close to 50 years. And they're way, way, way past the point uh, where their financial concerns are are legitimate, where they're, they're still doing this, you know, quote unquote, for a living. Um, you know, these guys could have retired years ago to very comfortable lifestyles. And I love the fact that they're still out there performing, but maybe guys, you just say, look, we're going to give the 50,000 per venue people who are you know lucky enough to get our tickets, uh, at a reasonable price and give everybody a chance to get out here. We can't control the secondary market, but don't worry about the secondary market. Even if you sell out all of your shows, at $100 or $200, there's millions and millions and millions of dollars to be made here. So, you know, there's a little bit more capitalism creeping in that uh, certainly fans would like to see a little bit less of. But, you know, who am I to say? I'm not Mick Jagger and nobody's asking, you know, nobody's uh, being charged $1,000 to see me and doing it. So um, you can't compete with that, but uh, it will be pricey to get your tickets to see the Rolling Stones. So it, it's a great event. You just have to be have to decide if you're willing uh, uh, to bite that bullet and go for it. So let's shift our focus uh, to a band that is out there right now, blowing people out of the water and being very, very reasonable in the prices that they charge. And that would be Joe Russo's Almost Dead, J-Rad, uh, who is touring again. And everywhere they go, people just love them. It's a combination of Grateful Dead covers, but I think that they cover Grateful Dead songs as well as anybody out there, including uh, Dead & Co., including Bobby, including Phil. Now, they're obviously not Bobby and Phil, so it doesn't replace seeing Bob Weir and or Phil Lesh or some of the other guys up there playing with them. Uh, But if you're just, you know, closing your eyes and tuning in your ears, uh, J-Rad is really, really hard to beat with such a talented lineup of artists uh, that have been playing with them for so long now. 
that, uh, you know, it, it, it's just hard to imagine uh, other people, right? We've got obviously Joe Russo uh, leading the way on drums, Tom Hamilton on guitar. He also plays with Billy and the Kids, and he's just exceptional. Uh, David Drywitz on the bass, Scott Metzger plays the other guitar, and Marco Benevenetto, uh, hard last name to always say, uh, is on the keyboards. Of course, he and Russo were playing as the duo for a number of years. Um, but with the addition of uh, Metzger and Drywitz and um, Hamilton, uh, they've just become an unstoppable force out there. And uh, they played at the Riviera Nightclub in Chicago this past weekend, Saturday night and Sunday night, excuse me, Friday night and Saturday night. Um, I was lucky enough to get to the Friday night show. I could not, I could have gone Saturday night. I had tickets, uh, but in the world of priorities, Saturday night, I prioritized watching Michigan play in the Big Ten Championship game against Iowa over J-Rad, only because I had just seen J-Rad the night before. And after all of the lean years that Michigan football went through, uh, in the 15 or so years leading up to the last couple, getting beaten like a drum by Ohio State every year, uh, either not making a bowl game or making one and getting their butts kicked. Uh, I'm of the mind that you got to enjoy the, the winning while you have it. And so uh, missed last night's show, or excuse me, Saturday night's show. And uh, look, Michigan won and they won big and they're going to the college football playoffs. They're the number one ranked team in the country right now. So for me, it was a good trade-off and I was very happy about that. Um, last night's show was very, very solid. Great, grateful dead covers. Um, the one thing I did miss in all of this and, and get it hard to time up with J rad these days is last night, uh, excuse me, Saturday night, they, they covered the 11 and that's the song that originally really locked me in on J rad, uh, because I truly believe that there is no band out there since the grateful dead back in the day, uh, that plays the 11 as true to form and as well as J rad with the exchanging vocals and the, and the weird time signatures and they just kill it. Um, when I, when you see dead and company and, and, and they play it, excuse me, I don't think that it, um, I don't think that it comes off quite as well, uh, as when other people play it. And, and, uh, uh, J red certainly just kills it. And, uh, as they do with everything. And it's, it's just, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. And it, it's really a lot of fun. So just to really quickly, um, you know, first set of a foolish heart into, and this is why J rad is great into tell me mama, a Bob Dylan. T- we, we may put this show on, we may put this J rad show on our show in one of the weeks to come because, uh, it, it's just exceptional uh, open with a foolish heart, which, you know, a, a lot of deadheads say was the, uh, one of their more favorite late Jerry tunes. And these guys cover it well, but then they go into tell me mama and tell me mama is a Bob Dylan tune. So we say, okay, look, no big deal. Lots of people cover Dylan. We know the dead covered Dylan quite a bit and uh, dead heads and the type of folks that go to see J-Rad probably love Dylan. But Tell Me Mama is a very unique Dylan tune. It's never been put out on an album. It was never released on a, uh, on a studio album by Bob Dylan. Furthermore, it was only played in concert by Bob Dylan on one tour, his world tour in 1966. And basically since that time, Dylan has never played it again. It was never released on an album. And this is the tune these guys are playing. Wait a second. How do you even know the tune exists unless you're so much of a Dylan head that you know you're you're going back and finding old bootlegs from him from way way back in the day? It's not like there's an album and you can say, "Wow, this is a strange song. I love this one. How come Dylan never played it live?" You really have to dig deep. And they did, and they played it and they killed it. It's just such a great song. Um and, and you know, God love J Rad for 
being creative and, and having the musical chops and the musical knowledge and history to go back and find music like this and just blew everybody away with it. You know, a lot of people knew it was a Dylan tune, uh, but without the wonderful aid of the internet, uh, finding out some of that information uh, might have been a little bit difficult. So I don't want anyone to think that I'm one of these guys who uh, just instinctively knew. I, I, like everyone else, when I heard what it was, immediately looked it up to figure out uh, this is a Dylan song. How come I don't you know, recognize it other than recognizing it as a Dylan tune? Um, uh, into a beautiful Cassidy, a very long first set space back into Cassidy. West L.A. Fadeaway, always a fun tune. A fantastic fire on the mountain. And we had a very long conversation. Uh, my group of buddies and I was there with my friend John and Marnie, Rick, uh, Joel, Stefan, whole group of guys and women. And the conversation was about fire on the mountain without the Scarlet intro or alternatively Scarlet without the fire on the mountain follow. And we love both tunes a lot, but unanimously we agreed that Fire on the Mountain is the much better standalone tune than Scarlet Begonia. Scarlet Begonia's is beautiful and it's a great song, but without Fire on the Mountain on the back end, it just kind of jams a little bit and then just would drift off because you don't have that immediate transition into Fire on the Mountain. With Fire on the Mountain, it's a little bit different because you can, you know, if you're transitioning out of almost anything, you're going into that tune and we're all used to Fire on the Mountain at the end of the song, you know, kind of being played in a way that signifies it's the end of the tune. But it was, it was just a beautiful fire on the mountain. They played it really, really well. We're sitting here looking at the time wondering, boy, first set started at 8.30. You know, we're, we're, we're starting to push, you know, 9.30, 9.45. How long are they going to go? Came out after that with a black-throated wind. And then just for the hell of it, just because they threw in a berth at the end of the first set. They clocked in at 90 minutes. Uh, tremendous berth, always fun. Uh, it was a great way for them to end the set. and We loved it. Very short set break, 10.30, man. They were right back out. You got to love that. Uh, opening with a good loving, and who doesn't love a good loving? As Alex Wellens always said, play good loving. Everybody leaves with a smile on their face. And it feels like a stranger. And then the moment of the concert. And before I talk about that, you have to just a little bit. I'm older. I know it. I get it now. I'm in my 60s. Okay, I'm one of the old guys. And at the show, we were having a really good time. And there was a guy standing right next to me from one of the Western suburbs who was there with his wife. She clearly was only there because he wanted to be there. I quickly established that he's too young to have seen Jerry, but so what? He knew all the songs. He was singing along with all of them. He could call them on the intros. Um, and, and he and I were having a good time because, you know, he would say to me, Oh, you saw Jerry. Sure. When was, Oh, 1982. Oh my God. I can't believe you. It, but you get a lot of that from the quote unquote newer kids who are now in their early forties who, you know, miss Jerry and all of that. Um, but we were still having a great time and feel like a stranger. We were talking about it. What a great tune and all the songs that they usually play in or out of it. It's show opener, um, all of that stuff. And then they're just jamming and jamming and jamming in between tunes like they do. And we're all just kind of hanging out and drifting in and, in and out and, you know, enjoying it. And all of a sudden you hear some notes and this is a very common experience with the dead or with fish or with any of these guys when they veer off their common path. And even if you know they're a cover band, you know, and you have a pretty good idea of the tunes that they cover, you never know for sure what they're going to be playing sometimes. And I'm hearing a few notes of a song, and I know this song. And it was so, in my mind, out of place, not, not in a bad way, but just not expecting to hear it at a show like this, that it really took me an extra minute to know, you know, to, to confirm that this is what I was hearing. And all the folks around me, not all of them, but a lot of them, including this guy, had no clue what it was. 
And of course they didn't because, go figure, J-Rad was covering Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet. Now, Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits is, is maybe is certainly one of my top two or three all-time favorite Dire Straits songs um, on their live album, Alchemy. It's a double album if you don't have it. If you've never heard of Dire Straits, you're missing out on a lot. If, if Mark Knopfler uh, had a little more weight and a lot of facial hair and lived in San Francisco, he could have been Jerry Garcia. I mean, he's that talented, this guy. He's just an amazing, amazing guitarist. He's got a great voice. And Dire Straits was just, I don't want to say was, like they're all dead or anything, but at that time in the, in the 80s and into the early 90s, um, just amazing what they did. And they had a little bit of, um, uh, you know, more uh, uh, pop tunes at the time, uh, MTV, Money for Nothing, Get Your Chicks for Free, and blah, blah, blah. And it was all, you know, fun. But they're really, you know, they're good songs like uh, Skate Away and Romeo and Juliet and Once Upon a Time in the West and, um, of course, Sultans of Swing, which was their really big song that everybody knew. Uh, and, and Romeo and Juliet is such a beautiful tune. And I just couldn't believe it. I was just blown away. Uh, it was marvelous that Tom Hamilton played it as well as anybody other than Mark Knopfler could have played it. Uh, he sang it in a lot of the same way that Mark would have, uh, Mark always sang it. And for me, that was such a highlight above and beyond everything else that there's, there's room for other, you know, minor highlights underneath it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I like to send songs uh, out to people who aren't at the show just to kind of keep up to date, sent it to my wife, uh, who was very disappointed that she didn't make the show because she loves Dire Straits and Romeo and Juliet is her favorite tune. Um, so it was just beautiful. It was a great thing to hear. And that's why you go to these shows because you just don't know what you're going to get out of and the whole second set, by the way, was just one long run of music. Everything went into everything else. There were no stops, no breaks. Uh, Romeo and Juliet into a beautiful here comes sunshine into Casey Jones. Then a second set space that kind of just dragged on for a while. I don't mean drag in a bad way, but really lasted for a while. Then they slipped into playing in the band and in the middle of playing in the band, they did a thing on drums it was just Joe doing his, uh, you know, solo drum solo up there, but all the other guys were on stage. And so I, I'm calling it drums with everyone because they were all dropping in. Now they weren't really playing as much as they were dropping in little chords and little notes here and there to complement the drumming. It was high energy. It was great back into playing in the band. And all of a sudden they're done. And you look up and in the blink of an eye, it's already 1145. Um, they didn't play a lot of songs, like seven songs each set. These guys just jam and jam and jam which is the way the dead used to do it way back in the day. And we're still kind of doing it up until the end. It's the way fish does it. And these guys show that they, you know, uh, they're, they're good, man. They can hold a candle to anyone and, uh, and get out there, give you your money's worth. The beauty of the Friday night show at the Riv was um, it just wasn't that crowded. There was no line to get in. Um, the floor had room. We had seats upstairs in the balcony because we're old folks now. And we like to be able to sit and there was plenty of room around us the whole time. Um, and it was just a, uh, a wonderful night for rock and roll and to see uh, J-Rad. I did not make it to the show last night, uh, Saturday night, uh, a little more crowded. And like it said, uh, they, they pretty much stuck to the script of being an all Grateful Dead band, which is wonderful. And, the, and they did play the 11, which I was sorry to miss. But nevertheless, uh, you go to see J-Rad because they're just that good and you just don't know. But without the Grateful Dead, we wouldn't have J-Rad. So let's go back to December 4th, 1969, and uh, we'll play the next clip that we have. 
So that's Dark Star. We all know Dark Star. Uh, it's such a wonderful song. Uh, and what I love about the Dark Star here, because you know, we still refer to 1969 um, as being uh, Primal Dead. Um, and we've recently featured some shows from 1970 and even 71, where by that point, the transition is almost complete. And while they're still reaching back out for the Dark Star, and maybe that's it for the other one, um, by that point in time, the boys are pretty much shifted into the Americana stream and pulling more and more away from Primal Dead. But this is 1969. This is still Primal Dead. And yet, you know, the, the boys are really giving the fans that night um, a double dose. They're, people are getting, we're getting a lot of songs from Working Man's Dead, which is clearly uh, the launching pad for the Americana Dead era and uh, moving out of Primal Dead. But you know, given that it's 69, they're not ready to give up on some of these songs yet. So we're getting this great mix of kind of old and new, uh, and it influences the songs. This is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful dark star. Um, and I have to admit the dark star is an acquired taste and it took me a while to really, uh, begin to understand and appreciate it fully. You know, it's a song that when you're listening on a CD on a, you know, in the car with a lot of people and you're driving along, you kind of have a tendency to skip over Dark Star because 30 minutes in a car with people listening to all the sounds and noises and and, and whatever music they're creating, uh, for a lot of people, it just doesn't fly. And people, no, no, I can't listen to this. I need a song with words or something like that. Um, but uh, if you start listening to Dark Stars, you very quickly pick up on why people love them so much and why they're so special. And it's really kind of fun to hear the different styles of Dark Stars over the years. But this is a tremendous Dark Star. Uh, it's 30 minutes long. Uh, it's got a slightly faster tempo than uh, the Dark Stars that had been played up to that point. Um, in the reviews of the show, people are calling it a transcendent Dark Star. Um, it's certainly one that I would very strongly recommend you listen to. It's a great launching point for other uh, Dark Star music and something uh, that I would highly recommend to anybody. Uh, now, at this point, they had been playing the song for almost two years. They broke it out for the first time on January 17th, 1968 at the Carousel Ballroom. And uh, after a total of, well, they played it a total of 241 times with the final performance on March 30th, 1994 at the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, interestingly, you wouldn't be surprised, in 69, 68, 69, 70, uh, the song got its most plays. And then after that, in the following years, the numbers would dwindle down to some years where there was none at all, a few years where there was only one or two. And then in the early 90s, it made a little bit of a comeback and was being played three or four times uh, a year by the dead. Although the caveat to that is that people would consider it to be a dark star, even on those occasions when they didn't sing the verses, or maybe they just sang the first verse and not the second verse, or maybe they sang the second verse if they had done the first verse a couple of shows before. Uh, but it was very rare uh, by the late 80s and 90s to get a full-blown Dark Star. That's why we always talk about 
1016.89 at Brendan Byrne and um, uh, 1026.89 down in Miami as being two tremendous examples of of what you would call modern day dark stars. So if you're looking for something newer, I would go for those. But this is a great one. And like I said, I think this is a good one to really kind of, uh, you know, learn about dark star just because it does move a little bit with a little more tempo and it is um their voices are great and it, it just sounds really really good the crowd loves it and uh you know 69 so good we got our dark star everybody is happy now switching back over to the uh americana side and working man's uh here's our next tune song i love high time off of working man's um and uh it, it's it's just uh it's a beautiful tune and i think that high time could have worked just as well in the primal dead era um the way they play it the way they sing it the way they bring out the music on it um it, it's just absolutely a beautiful thing and uh it's always been a fan favorite for me uh it was tricky because even though the Grateful Dead ultimately played it 133 times, uh, it took me a long, long, long time to see it. I started seeing the Dead in 82. I finally caught it 10 years later, 92, at the um, Sam Boyd Silver Shows, Sam Sam Boyd Bowl, Silver, excuse me, Sam Silver Shows, Sam Boyd shows, okay, well, I'm getting it all wrong. The Sam Boyd Silver Bowl, thank you. It took me a minute to get that out. In lovely Las Vegas, um, we were there for uh, Alex's bachelor party, and the second day, deep into the second set, or no, deep into the first set, rather, um, they pulled out of high times, and it was nice because I was there with a big group of my deadhead buddies, and we all knew which songs guys in the group had not heard. On the minute they started playing it, everybody came running, hey, are you hearing it's high times, and I was, and it was beautiful, um, but I especially enjoyed it a few months later when I saw them at the uh, Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, and they played it again. And now I was really ready for it, and it was indoors, and it was, you know, more focused and um, a great tune. But, you know, for me, it was just one of those where it was uh, tricky to catch up with it. Uh, but again, a, 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 a big hit off of uh, Working Man's and one that uh, Deadheads always love to hear. Uh, they had first played it just a few months before on June 21st, 69 at the Fillmore East. 
And the last performance of High Time by the Grateful Dead was March 24th, 1995 um, in uh, Charlotte. Uh, so, you know, which keeps in touch with it. You know, after that, there was still a few months left uh, before they stopped playing and uh, Jerry never pulled it out again. So uh, High Times is a great tune, a lot of fun, always a, a crowd pleaser. And I think, you know, with this with this combination of uh, Black Peter off of Working Man's and then into Dark Star uh, from Primal Dead and then back in uh, to High Times from Working Man. And we still have one more Primal we'll get to in a minute. Um, and as we as we kind of wrap up talking about this show, uh, but I want to take advantage of this moment to switch over uh, to the other side of our uh, programming and let's talk marijuana for a minute. You've been smoking marijuana. Marijuana is illegal. I know that. That's right. For now. In a couple of years, things may change when all the kids grow up and start wearing ties and going to the polls. Marijuana is going to be like liquor packaged and taxed and sold right off the shelf. I doubt it, Mr. Shipley. Look, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it seems to me there must be better things for cops to do than chase down wild rumors about something as innocent as marijuana. Why don't you go after the big bad guys, the heroin peddlers? I won't argue with you about them. They should be stopped. That's right. We'd like to put them out of business. That's why we're here. What do you mean? We're trying to keep them from getting a new customer. There's a big difference between marijuana and hard narcotics. Yeah, but it's only a small step. And everybody who takes a drink is going to be an alcoholic. We know that's not true, don't we? Let's face it, we're on opposite sides of the fence and there's nothing we can do about it. For you, if there's a law against it, it's wrong, black and white. I just don't see things that way, that's all. Well, you ought to give it a try, fella. It might keep you out of jail. Maybe, but we'll change the law someday, even though your friend here thinks we won't. Believe me, it's a new world. Your laws are as outdated as bustles. Laws are going to have to be changed to keep pace with the new morality. They'll change or we'll have to break them. So, wait a second, you're saying, that's not music. What, what, what are we playing here? Uh, if you listen to the voices very carefully, you can recognize Sergeant Joe Friday from a mile away. And um, he and his partner are busting a guy for marijuana, a well-dressed businessman. You can go find the clip on YouTube. It's hysterical. And they're explaining to him, right, why they're, why they're busting him. And I love it. This is what, I don't know what year this was made, the late 1960s at some point. Uh, but certainly when marijuana was being added to Schedule 1 by President Nixon, and, uh, you know, if you weren't a hippie, the common thought was that marijuana was a, uh, was a, uh, a killer and a dangerous drug. Um, and and this, this, this perp on Dragnet is trying to explain to the guys why they're wasting their time arresting him because it's just marijuana, man. It's not like it's heroin or LSD or any of those other drugs. And besides, it, it's all going to be made legal anyway. And don't you want to be on the right side of history, but... Sergeant Joe Friday is a no-nonsense cop, as we all know. And, you know, he, he explains to the man why, well, maybe someday, but not today. And right now it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's we say it's illegal and you're going to jail for it. And, you know, way to go, uh, way to go, uh, Sergeant Friday. And, of course, Dragnet was based on uh, um, uh, various uh, actual crime stories that, that uh, uh, um, Joe Friday would, uh, the actor's name, which I'm spacing on for a minute, would go, dig up the uh, uh, answers for that, you know, and he would, and they would, they would base these off of, you know, real stories. He had a great relationship with law enforcement and law enforcement liked the show because it cast law enforcement in a positive light and sent a, you know, sent a lawful message to everybody. Um, but it's just great, right? Cause we've all watched this show, or at least those of us that are old enough to have watched it. And we all kind of laughed as you get older at how square Joe Friday sounds. And here these guys have this conversation with this, you know, very ordinary business dressed guy, 
uh, and he's speaking the lines that we all speak today uh, about uh, the positives of marijuana and why it shouldn't be illegal and why nobody should be arrested for it. But back then on Dragnet, yeah, you made a mistake. You're going to jail. So uh, nice that we uh, were able to come up with that clip. And uh, although Dan is normally the guy who comes up with our uh, Grateful Dead inspired music clips, a shout out for this one goes to cool cousin Brent in St. Louis, who found it and sent it up to me uh, for a little humor. And so we could uh, incorporate it into today's show. So thank you, Brent, for that. And uh, hope you all liked it. You can go and find Dragnet on your local Hulu or whatever TVs they have it. And, you know, I find it a lot of fun to get really high and sit down and watch Dragnet. And then they all just seem a little more silly. Um, But let's jump into the world of marijuana news here for a minute because there is um, some stuff going on. MJ Biz Conference just wrapped up this past week. And I did not make it out there this year. Dan was there, but I I did not have a chance and Rob didn't make it. Uh, But, you know, there seems to be a sense uh, of people that they talk to at the conference that the best days are still to come for the cannabis industry. And people are pointing to the fact that uh, the Safe Banking Act is hopefully going to get passed this year, uh, that marijuana is being rescheduled to get rid of the 280E obligations, uh, some other policy changes uh, that may come along along the way. And um, interestingly, uh, they're all talking about a dynamic that I've been talking about for 10 plus years because I heard it 10 years ago at uh, MJ Biz in Seattle. And from the very first day, I th- this to me has always been um, an important part, and that is coopetition, right? Uh, in other words, you're always in competition with the guys next to you, who, the other people in the industry, but you have to cooperate with them. Because in order for the industries to survive, everybody has to survive. You know, if, if uh, Cresco puts everybody else out of business, it's good for Cresco, but it's not good for the rest of us. And here they're talking about uh, shifting attitudes away from viewing fellow operators as competition and instead looking to partner with them to find various synergies. And that's one of the things actually that MJ Biz has always been about is bringing so many people in the industry together from so many different parts of it with the hope that there will be this kind of commonality and all doing the same thing and how can we work together and uh, a a rising tide lifts all boats kind of moment, if you will. Um, And, you know, the message from folks in the industry is is very clear. If you don't believe in it, you shouldn't be in the industry. And I kind of disagree with that statement because you can absolutely be in the industry, but, you know, still disagree um, where things are at in the the industry right now. Um, And while there certainly is uh, some of this going on, this coopetition, if you will, there's a lot of competition going on. Um, we're seeing it in Illinois. The big question is whether or not uh, the new license holders who are now uh, kind of up and running a little bit are going to ever be able to compete with the, the Crescos and the Zen Leafs and, and, and Cure Leafs and all of the big uh, MSOs out there. And, uh, you know, that really remains to be seen. But the sense is, is that those big guys uh, are very happy having the markets to themselves and don't really seem to be all that interested in, uh, you know, lending out a helping hand uh, to the newbies who could come in and really fill out the market and and make it overall a a stronger market and a better market, uh, which would be good for everybody. And we don't see a lot of that right now. And the other thing, while I, you know, hate to be a negative Nelly about any of this, there's still a big question as to the current financial state of the industry these days. And most of these uh, conferences over the last few years uh, have been very, very heavy 
on people looking for money, looking for investors, all with great ideas, but just not with the financing to get it done. And a lot of people who are saying, you know, I'm here looking for good ideas, but I'm really not interested in investing money in anybody else at the moment. And that's kind of problematic. And, you know, we, we, we've talked about this before. And the hope is, of course, that we can get to a point uh, and maybe with federal reforms, investors will be willing to step back in more. But it also has to start within the industry itself. And we have to have good business people who follow the rules and aren't getting themselves shut down. We have to have people uh, who agree that coopetition is the way to go. And so if you're Cresco, you're, <coughs> excuse me, willing to help everybody and reach out so that people can come along. A new mom and pop dispensary in Chicago <coughs> is not going to unseat Cresco or any of the other big boys uh, from their positions. And it would be good for a lot of other people and get more people interested in buying the products. And eventually that creates business for the multi-state operators as well. So the hope is that everyone would go that way. Well, you know what? We'll see what happens over time. And, you know, we'll see what happens by the MJ Biz Conference next year and where things are at. Right now, I would say, in my opinion, the market is kind of status quo and where it's been for the last year, year and a half, um, you know, but with a hope that uh, we will see a significant turnaround that will bring people, uh, especially investors, back in and uh, create a level of coopetition that will really let the market grow into something uh, you know, that we're all looking for it uh, to be. And that would be great. Uh, in the meantime, here's why we all still love marijuana and tell the, the squares to piss off. Another day, another report. This time uh, we find out that in a uh, uh, federally funded study, people with anxiety experience better quality sleep on days when they use marijuana compared to days when they use alcohol or nothing at all uh, to control their anxiety. The study was published in the Journal of Drug and Alcohol Review and was conducted by researchers at the University of Colorado, Colorado State University, and the University of Haifa in Israel, where they analyzed the subjective sleep quality of almost 400 people who reported using cannabis to treat anxiety. They wanted to understand the different ways sleep was affected by the use of marijuana, alcohol, neither or both on a given day. And they were asked, people in the study were asked to fill out a daily survey for 30 days, what substances they used, and how was their sleep experience as a result? And uh, it, it was all compared. And they say compared to non-use, participants reported better sleep after cannabis use only and after co-use, but not after alcohol use only. Well, that's not surprising. Um, we've, you know, again, was last week or the week before, we talked about the study that said people who use marijuana find that they sleep better than people who use prescription or over-the-counter sleep aids. And this is just taking that to the next level. Somebody says, I'm having trouble sleeping. I don't, I don't want to use uh, over-the-counter or pharmaceutical sleep aids. Um, so what, are, what do I look to? Oh, well, there's alcohol, which you know a lot of people drink, 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 and pass out from drinking alcohol, or smoking marijuana, or both ways, to control anxiety and help people who have anxiety sleep better. It can't be a surprise to anyone who's been paying attention that the people who use marijuana are going to have a more uh, relaxing, a better sleep than after alcohol. Why? Because your body welcomes the marijuana. It welcomes the cannabis. We have cannabis receptors in our brains. Alcohol is putting like poison in your body. It doesn't mean that people don't get drunk and fall asleep. But my personal experiences would be, I agree with the study that I sleep much better uh, if I've smoked marijuana than if I've had a lot to drink. 
um, you know, when I have a lot to drink, it, it really kind of throws me off. I, I, I definitely do not sleep as well. And I do not feel nearly as well in the morning um, when I wake up as opposed to uh, having smoked the night before. So, you know, this, this is not groundbreaking. The only thing that's groundbreaking about it is that we're seeing the recognition of it right here in a study so that it's not just conjecture. It's not just somebody's subjective opinion. We're, we're doing more and more tests. And since we're all about these tests, there's another test that just came out. Uh, and in this one, they uh, did a study of young adults. And uh, again, a federally funded study suggests that marijuana legalization may be linked to a substitution effect with young adults in California significantly reducing their use of alcohol and cigarettes after the cannabis reform was enacted. And what's more, the research appears to contradict prohibitionist arguments about the potential impact of legalization, as the data also revealed no significant increase in marijuana use among young adults who are still not of age to access retail dispensaries, though there were interesting changes in certain modes of consuming cannabis following the policy change. This is like a broken record. We were hearing this all the time, and now we're hearing it twice. Two things are being suggested here, right? First one, the one we know, which is that legalizing marijuana does not lead to an increase in um, marijuana use among young adults who are still under the age of being able to go into a retail dispensary to purchase their marijuana. The prohibitionists say, we don't want our kids to smoke marijuana. We don't want this law to which we always say either A, your kids are already smoking marijuana and B, if they're not, uh, the the studies show everywhere. You're not going to be any different here that when it is legalized, young adult use does not go up. So prohibitionists, it's time to take that argument, shove it up your ass and move on to something else because that one's not going to cut it for you anymore. And, you know, I do get, uh, you know, a little worked up about these from time to time because for God's sakes, folks, how many studies do we need to really demonstrate to us that we know all of this and, you know, we're all just ready to move on. And, you know, I, I, I don't have an answer for you other than the fact that it keeps guys like me in business because it gives us something to, to talk about and rant about um, and, and really, you know, try to push the message. And when the, when the federally funded studies come out, that only helps the position. It gives people saying, I'm not just making this up. I'm not just making excuses for why I like to get high. Hey, guess what? There's real research out there that supports everything I'm telling you about why I like to get high, about the positive benefits that I get from it, and about the negative benefits, the the negative aspects that exist in people's minds, but not in reality. Um, So thank you for all of these studies. Sorry if you get bored hearing me talk about it, but if you're listening to my show, uh, you're going to hear me talk about it anytime they come out, because it's just one of these things where we really, you know, need to kind of, you know, slap the straights in the face a few times and say, hey, guys, You don't have to like it. You don't have to smoke it. Leave us alone. Please just leave us alone and let us do our thing and don't be busybodies in everybody else's life. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see if that happens or if it doesn't, but as long as these studies come out, we're all about it. Um, But back to the grateful dead, because of course you're at the grateful dead. Your marijuana is inherently part of it anyway. And especially if you were at a grateful dead show 50 years ago in 1969 in San Francisco at the Fillmore West. Uh, And so going back to that school, back to that show, I almost gave it away, back to that show, for a little more dip into the primal Deadpool, uh, here's our next tune. Oh, 
Come on now, Lerato. Lerato, why don't you just come on home? You know, I need you, darling. I got to get you all alone. Good morning, little schoolgirl. Can I come home with you? Can't you hear me crying? Well, that's all I gotta do. Wonderful, wonderful song. Uh, an old-time uh, classic first recorded by uh, John uh, Lee Sonny Boy Williams in 1937. The composer of the song uh, remains somewhat of a mystery, although it has been tracked back to uh, uh, Back Inside Blues album by Sun Bonds in 1934. So my research, that was about the best that I could come up with. Uh, as to who actually wrote the song, but it's a it's a very famous, uh, very uh, well known blues number uh, that's been covered by any one of a number of people in the in the blues business and out. John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Junior Wells, Buddy Guy, the Yardbirds uh, uh, played it, um, and uh, you know it, it, it's just one of those things where um, so it, it just has. Uh, uh, a rich history in rock and roll and certainly one, um, you know, that, that the, the, the stars of rock and roll, the guys who lean towards the blues side of music uh, always picked up on and, uh, and love to play. And so it should be no surprise to anyone uh, that primal grateful dead with Pigpen, who was nothing, if not a blues aficionado hiding as a rock and roll star. Um, and you can hear him singing his lead on this. That's him playing the harmonica uh, just an exceptional, exceptional uh, musician and, and one who I really, really am sorry that I did miss um, more than any of the other guys in the band who didn't make it all the way through. But Big Pen was such a such a crucial part of the band during the uh, during that time period. And, you know, his his blues ability and background, his ability to play the harmonica and his ability to go up there and just rap out his stories, you know, at a blues beat. Um was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, Schoolgirl was released on the Grateful Dead's original album, Grateful Dead, um, in 67, 68, when that album came out. Um, and it was a tune that uh, uh, the Grateful Dead ultimately did not play very often. Um, they, they certainly would play it sometimes and certainly a lot more uh, back in the early days. Uh, it did actually wind up getting played about 79 times, almost 80 times. Um and uh, it was first played on February 25th, 1966, actually, at the Ivor Theater in Los Angeles. Last played on June 28th, 95, at the Palace of Auburn Hills, just outside of Detroit. 
The second to last time they played it was June 25th, 1992 at Soldier Field, a show that I was at, um, and we were just blown away by it. Uh, they came out, they just went into Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, and it was like, wow, this is this is old-time classic uh, Grateful Dead uh, that nobody wants to miss. It was played very intermittently in those years as well, once or twice in 87. Uh, in fact, only one time between 1970 and 1987, once in 88, once in 92. And then in 95, they pulled it out about four or five times, um, which is a relatively short period because it only had half the year. Um, but again, uh, it, it's a great song. It, it's out on you know any one of a number of uh, live releases that are covering uh, the late 60s, early 70s portion of it. But just just a wonderful tune to hear them play on. Really a chance for Pig to show his stuff. And uh, what a fun concert, you know, as they sit here and just kind of toggle back and forth between Americana Dead, Working Man's Dead, and Schoolgirl is just such a such a good, strong song to be on the um, on the Primal Dead sign side of things. And uh, again, at this show in '69, they kind of have the split personality, uh, and they pull this out so. Uh, that was great too. Um, as we wrap up today, because once again, it's hard to believe that an hour has flown by, but it has, uh, things to be thinking about. Um, I don't know how many of you watch Jimmy Kimmel, but the other night he came out, uh, actually a month or two ago now, but, uh, he has declared October 20th, uh, to be dog father day and dog father day is because on October 20th, it's Snoop Dogg's birthday, but significantly and coincidence or not, you tell me, 1020 is the exact midpoint between 420 and the rest. You know, if you're at 420, you say, when will we be exactly six months out? You go to October 20th. So Snoop's birthday is on the half-year birthday or half-year anniversary of 420. And that may be kind of scraping the bottle of the barrel to look for coincidences, but that's okay because Snoop is full of them. And Jimmy Kimmel, God love him. So, you know, from now on, folks, on 1020, uh, don't forget to celebrate your Dog Father's Day right along with your marijuana celebration on 420. And uh, thanks to Jimmy Kimmel for calling that out for us. Um, he's good like that, and uh, we know we can always count on good things from him. Um Otherwise, a uh, quick shout out to my good buddy, uh, David S. down in St. Louis, who's celebrating a big birthday today. Um, he was uh, one of my good buddies from growing up, never never a big Grateful Dead fan, so he and I don't share that link, uh, but lots of other links we have in common. So uh, shout out on a birthday to him. And um, yeah, just, just great, great stuff going on. We've got some more good shows that we're going to be featuring coming up, have a few guests that we're working on to bring in over the next couple of weeks. And of course, you know, heading into the end of the year, uh, things quiet down a little bit and it's always nice just to have a little more time uh, to listen to wonderful music. And speaking of wonderful music on the way out the door today, um, we have uh, a song for you that everybody knows, everybody loves, uh, everybody uh, always wants to hear and is always happy when the Grateful Dead play it. And in fact, it's Uncle John's band, and we're gonna we're gonna get into that in one second. Uh, and the significance of Uncle John's band at this show, once again, the Grateful Dead broke out Uncle John's band for the very first time on December fourth, nineteen sixty nine. Another working man's uh, preview. Uh, 
and a song that would go on to become uh, Far and Away, one of the Dead's most popular tunes, uh, played almost 350 times. Uh, this was the first performance last played also on June 28th, 1995 at the Palace of Auburn Hills, uh, which was a little disappointing that they never pulled it out one more time in the uh, remaining uh, week or two of shows that they had left. Uh, but this is a great Uncle John's band, and it's going to sound a little bit different than what you're used to, but that's what makes it so special and really makes it a lot of fun. Uh, great song to go out on, and that's what we're going to leave you with today. So I hope everybody has a great week. I hope everybody is safe and healthy, gets to watch some good college football. Cheers for the University of Michigan. Sorry, Ohio State fans, that's just the way it is right now. And for everybody else out there, as always, please enjoy your cannabis safely and responsibly, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everyone. Blue Mops instead just trying to remember how to play. And so we're going to blow this part of the set, remembering how to sing a song that we just learned how to play. <laughs> we just barely know. We're going to just try it again. What the fuck? Well, the first days are the hardest days, don't you worry anymore. When life looks like easy streets, there is danger at your door. Think this through with me, let me know your mind.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on Pod. Connex, and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.